0: Hello and welcome back to the Literary Salon Podcast It's me, Damien Barr, In a very rainy Brighton Come on spring Welcoming you back to another book of the week We have got some amazing titles lined up for you This month I hope you've enjoyed some of our recents We've got Carrie Marshall We've had Jojo Moyes Bolo Babalola All these amazing people up for awards Picking the best books And this week is no different Today we're welcoming author Mark A. Radcliffe to the podcast with a reading from his book Three Gifts. He's published by Epoch who are based in Dublin and my adopted home of Brighton. Two very fine literary cities indeed and Epoch have a brilliant backlist so definitely check them out if you don't know them and that's spelled E-P-O-Q-U-E Trishi. Now, Three Gifts is one of those high concept books um, with uh, just a very relatable story. The thought-provoking concept at the centre of it is this. What if you could trade years of your life to prolong the life of someone you love? It's a swap that hopefully you've never had to think about, but it is right at the centre of this novel. And it's the epitome of a sort of kind of altruism um, that Mark was inspired to think about by his work as a nurse. And he describes the role of a nurse as being defined by the institutionalization of sacrifice, which is a completely brilliant turn of phrase and one that I'm gonna be thinking about for a while. So in Three Gifts, the central character, Francis, grows up in poverty with an absent father and a mother whose love makes up for everything else, everything else that's missing. But when that beloved mother becomes ill, Francis is offered a contract by a mysterious stranger uh, that will change his life forever. Having negotiated the day of his own death, Francis then tries to live a good, albeit shortened life. Three Gifts is one of those really special, tender books. It reminded me of the, the people you'll meet in heaven. And it's full of awry humour and characters that you're really going to relate to. You're going to be talking about this book a lot this year. Anyway, here is Mark with a reading from
1: Three Gifts. Hello, my name is Mark A Radcliffe and I'm delighted to be reading exclusively for listeners of the Damien Barr Literary Salon from my new book, Three Gifts. Just by a brief moment, um, by way of context, I used to work in healthcare. Before COVID, I was doing a little bit of work in a local hospice, and I met a man and an uncle, Malcolm. He was having really painful life-extending treatment at the time. And I remember him asking, rhetorically, because it's an unanswerable question, how long he should carry on having this treatment. He was quite old. He'd done his national service just after the war, but he considered himself to be really fortunate. The boys had been a little, few years older than him. They'd not come back from the war, some of them. Their families had suffered, they'd suffered. He'd made it to old age and he'd met his grandchildren and he'd even outlived his wife by five years and he clearly adored her. He told me quietly that she hadn't suffered when she was ill. He'd prayed that she would not feel too much pain and that if there was pain to be had, then give it to him. And now here he was, five years later, in pain. I was really interested in that. The love or the sacrifice, I suppose, but also that impossible question he seemed to be asking. When is it enough? When has he paid whatever it was he he offered? It's a ridiculous idea, I know that. We don't get to bargain with a chaotic universe. But it's not an idea, is it? It's a feeling. And I think this book began with that, began with that feeling. Anyway, I'm going to read from chapter 2, which is the very beginning of life for our central character, whose name is Francis Broad. This is where he sneaks through a crack in the universe and he makes it onto the planet. And I think it sets a tone for the emotional world he finds himself in. Thank you so much for your time. When Francis was born, the doctor told his mother that he was very ill and that she should prepare herself for the worst. His mother was an anxious, lonely woman named Rose, who'd wanted a child more than she believed any woman had wanted one before. And she did not know how you were supposed to prepare yourself for the loss of your baby. She thought the doctor must have been mistaken with his advice and she immediately wanted to ask for a second opinion, for someone else to take a look at her constantly screaming newborn. However, it was the 1970s and demanding that cleverer doctors be called upon was not an option for her. Praying was, and so was saying things like, He will not die. God would not have given him to me only to take him away again. God is not cruel. Rose was considered quite old for a mother, being three months away from her thirty-eighth birthday, and deep down she still believed herself to be a virgin. She was a short, slightly plump woman with grey, darting eyes, and the accumulated sense of always feeling like the odd one out had drawn fear onto her face. It was that fear which people saw first when they looked at her. She had been put into foster care by her widowed mother at the age of six, only to be retrieved by her a stepfather and a baby sister when she was eleven. She did a lot of childcare by way of thanks, and she worked harder being useful, but she never quite banished the belief that she would be disposable again if her house ever felt too small. It was a feeling she vowed never to pass on to her own child, should she ever manage to have one. Francis' father, Percy, was a big, recurrently absent man who liked to drink and had in his youth been considered moderately clever and passably handsome. He retained the slightly inflated confidence that those limited gifts had bestowed. He was something of a faded womaniser, 17 years older than Rose, with thin red veins showing through his cheeks and exhausted, damp eyes. Kilmas verified Rose's claims of innocence by openly doubting that he was the baby's father. "'Are you sure it's mine? Because, believe me, that wasn't sex,' he'd said the day she had told him she was pregnant. She burst into tears and screamed, "'I've never been touched by another man. How could you even say that?' Percy was unconvinced. There had been touching, yes, and something akin to intimacy, but his third-hand Ford Prefect 100E was a small car with unmovable seats, and he had a bad back. He had offered to drive Rose home at closing time, even though it was out of his way, and he had taken the scenic route along the coast road where he'd stopped near enough to the sea to hear the waves and the wind, and then he put his large cigarette-stained hand on her knee. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do, Rose had whispered longing for knowing to not matter. "'Just do what comes naturally,' Percy had replied, working hard not to sigh. "'None of this comes naturally,' thought Rose, along with, "'Why do you still have your coat on? And where did I put my other glove?' She went straight to bed when she got home, and when she got undressed she noticed her tights were ripped, so she hid them at the bottom of her chest of drawers so she wouldn't see them in the morning. "'We didn't actually do it. Not properly. Not really.' Rose told her disapproving sister a few weeks later after finding out she was pregnant. You have to marry him, said her sister, a respectable woman married to a bank clerk who aspired to home ownership and feared that any association with a fallen woman could affect her husband's career prospects. He hasn't asked me. The bastard, said her sister, who was called Ruby but wished she wasn't because she thought it made her sound like a barmaid, even though she actually worked part-time in a shoe shop and had been one of the very first people she knew to own Tupperware but Rose's path to the maternity ward didn't matter remotely after the doctor had delivered his verdict. He has the wrong sort of blood, he'd said, or at least that's what she heard. Change it, Rose told him, but he shook his head. If only it were that easy, he mumbled. Francis was in the intensive care unit, yet Rose could still hear him from the ward she was recovering on. A rhythmic scream, as if the newborn breathed in fire and expelled it as loudly as he could on the fourth beat of every burning bar. The new mothers who shared the ward with her held their own children closer and out of pity or shame or superstition tried not to look at her. Rose listened to Francis, waited for him to stop screaming and be brought to her. She was too afraid to sleep in case it was only her listening that was keeping him alive and she swore a thousand times that once he was, she would never let him go. After four days of listening, Rose was told she should go home. Back at the house, Rose sat in the kitchen, trying to make sense of what was happening, whilst making silent deals with God. I'll never ask for anything else, she begged. Just let him live. She shared a council house with Percy and her widowed stepfather in a village called Birchington. They lived beside a field and on a main road. It had three bedrooms and she painted the smallest white for when she brought her baby home. Percy stayed out of the house until closing time, and when he came home he crept up the stairs to a bedroom that Rose did not even visit. He was usually drunk and slept late. By the time he was awake the next day, Rose had gone back to the hospital. She sat outside the ward where her son still screamed. Four days after she'd been discharged on a gloomy, overcast Wednesday, she sensed the screaming had become less frequent, quieter, And she wondered if that was because there was less fight or less life left in the child. She concentrated with all of her might on the sound he made. It is life, she decided. I will him to scream. It took two more days for the screaming to stop, but stop it did. Rose gripped her hands together so tightly that her nails broke the skin and she stared at the entrance to the ward and begged her God to let her son be alive. Before she'd come to the hospital that day, she'd watched her father limp off to work. He was old now, waiting to retire. His back hurt, his knees hurt. Take him, take my father, not my son, she thought, and then felt instantly ashamed, not least for imagining that God ran a part-exchange franchise and that someone like her would be allowed to shop there. But also because wishing someone else's life away was wicked, and she was afraid God might punish her for that. Then she thought... Take my son's father. And she didn't feel ashamed for that. Rather, she thought, Percy should offer that sacrifice. That is what fathers should do. When the ward sister came out, Rose saw something approaching hope in her expression. He appears to have turned a corner, she said. He appears settled. The doctors say he's improving. They say the worst is over. He wants to live. When she finally stepped into the ward, Rose saw a sleeping baby who had sneaked through a crack in the universe just to get to her. He was not red now, not angry, not in pain, and Rose was allowed to stroke his hair and slip her finger into his small, perfect hands. I will keep you safe, she whispered to the yellow bundle of exhausted flesh. It was her job to keep him alive now, to protect him and guard against any future assault. Rose had purpose, and she planned to build her whole life around it. When she was told she had to leave, she went home and gave the news to her father, who grinned and said, I told you, see, I told you. Then she went to the telephone box in the corner of the street and called her sister, who said in a flat tone, Well, that's good news. At least you can relax now. Back at the house, she sat at the kitchen table, sipped with a cup of steaming coffee her father had made for her, and then she wondered where Percy was. He came home two hours later. He still smelt of beer, and when he cried, she couldn't tell if it was the sentimental tears of the drunk or the only expression available to the emotionally illiterate plumber who had been the first and only man she'd kissed. He proposed to her that evening, and she wondered if a proposal from a man who smelt of beer still counted. But she said yes anyway, thinking that given the fragile hold her son had on the earth, she must never do anything that might even slightly unsettle the natural order or expectation of things. And besides, she had promised to make sacrifices. Perhaps this was the first. They married in the local registry office four months later and not many people came because not many people considered it a celebration. Percy's best man was one of his drinking friends, a man called Bill, whom Rose had never met. He began his speech by saying he was not accustomed to public speaking and then he spent several minutes proving it. This is a confusing state of affairs, he said in a cigarette-coated monotone, not least because the honeymoon came before the wedding. Right on cue, Francis started crying to helpfully fill the space where nobody laughed. The reception was held in what was commonly known as the children's room at Percy's favourite pub. It was a drab, square room with a portrait of Winston Churchill on the wall and flocked wallpaper that had been randomly scratched off by bored, abandoned kids. Rose wondered if perhaps this was respectability calling but the idea left her when Percy came out of the gents with a wet patch visible on the front of his trousers. Ruby, who had been the maid of honour, whispered, "'You shouldn't have done this, you know. "'People will still think of your son as a bastard.' "'Not near me, they won't,' said Rose firmly. "'The boy needs a father, doesn't he?' A question that began as rhetorical turned into something like resignation halfway through. Within ten minutes of the cake being cut, Percy had wandered into the bar next door and was watching a horse race on the television, Rose left the pub before it was dark, taking her son home. I need to feed him and get him to bed, she'd said, and nobody argued because that was indeed what mums had to do with babies. Francis, who hadn't stopped crying since the honeymoon joke, appeared relieved by the clear, dusk air. He didn't like the cigarette smoke, and like his mum, he didn't seem terribly keen on the smell of beer either.
0: Mark, thank you so much for joining us. We loved sharing your book on the podcast and I really feel for Rose trying to make the best of a bad situation understatement. But at least she got Francis out of the bargain. That was Mark A. Radcliffe reading exclusively for the Literary Salon. His new book, Three Gifts, is published by Epoch Press and available now in all good bookshops. I can see this novel being really popular with book club discussions and I'm not surprised to see that it is a book club pick by our friends over at Kenilworth Bookshop. So if it's one that you love and you want to share it, you know what to do. Please share the podcast with one of your beloved, bestest book friends, maybe the person who you would trade some time for, who is that person. And let's keep thinking about the institutionalisation of sacrifice. Thank you for listening and join us again soon.